So the average person in the United States lives about 80 years. If you break that down, that's 29,200 days or 700,800 hours. Anybody lost yet? You tracking? 700,800 hours that you are sucking air and alive. On average, you might be above average. Who knows? If you break down the hours, roughly 20% of your life of its entirety is spent working. But while you are working, your life looks more like this. 35% dedicated to work, that four-letter word that nobody likes. 29% sleep. If you have kids, you can reduce that down to about 17% sleep, and you can thank the good Lord that somehow you survive. Can I get an amen? Right? I have a three-month-old at home, three kids. Trust me, it's an amen. Then roughly... 11% spent on relationships, 10% on transportation, 8% just doing all the junk for your house or where you live, be it cleaning the dishes, paying bills, you name it, the things that take up time, and 7% for everything else. How? Can we just start naming everything else, really? Like, how do we fit everything in? And if work is going to take such a large chunk, if we're going to spend that much time working, shouldn't it matter what we do? See, time is a limited commodity, and I want to invite us to make what we do matter. We started a brand new series last week, and it goes through September, and obviously by the title that you saw earlier, the series is called Don't Waste Your Work. Don't waste your work, um, because how many of us can sing the song, you can take this job and shove it, I don't work here, nobody, come on, everybody knows the song, you know the words even if you don't know the song right? I don't actually know the rest of the words of the song, but I know that line, right? Um, I, I think that's a reality for a lot of people. And whenever I meet someone, they always say, like, well, what do you do? Like, inevitably, that question comes up. And, uh, and I want to be able to answer that with some passion. I met this lady this week who, um, she was serving food. And I was like, this lady's into her job. Like, she, she likes it. You could just see it on her face. And, and, and so I said, what do you do? And she goes, well, I'm actually a nutritionist. And what I love is I get to go teach kids and people, A, how to make a budget, but B, how to make that budget work so that they can buy and cook healthy food so they don't get sick and they can care for their families. And the, the lights just go ping because she knew why she was working. Last week, we started with this sacred rhythm, which is a strange place to start a series about work for us to say manuha, which means rest, to take a Sabbath, 
to, to set aside time where you're not working because if we only always work, we get bent out of shape and we begin to think that our identity and our value comes from our production and we fail to see what the real thing is. We think work is the real thing rather than entering into what all the work was for. And so there's this sacred rhythm about the God who rests, who invites us to rest so that we can enter in fully present to what the work is for, to who is important, to the relationships. And we miss that if we don't have the sacred rhythm. But if we can get that part right, where we can set aside time to recenter and reorient ourselves, get connected with the divine and notice what's most important, then the rest of our time working, if we're going to make sense of it, if we're going to be like that lady and have passion about what we do, I think we have to start with the why. Because if I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, I am very much... Uh, more likely to be careless, lackadaisical, frustrated. You're very, it's probably going to be evident with the way that I wear my emotion on my face. I don't know if you know this about me, but I have a terrible poker face. So whatever I'm feeling, you're going to know it. I have that type of transparency, which sometimes is great and other times is, you know, troublesome, right? But at least you know what you're going to get. And I think if I don't know why I'm working, I'm like, I'm like my, you know, my five-year-old, like limp body, like, I don't want to do this. Why? Because I don't understand why it's what it's for. So why do we work? If you're following along on wayfinders.info with the notes, there's actually a place for you to answer that. Why do you work? I, I'd love to know the answer to that. Why do we, why do we work? Is it to um, is it to pay the mortgage? That's not super compelling, is it? If it's just to pay the mortgage, then it seems like that would invite me to take a lot of shortcuts to just get the money and walk away. Why do we work? It, you know, here's quick foretaste of what's happening next week. We're doing purpose this week. Next week, we're doing calling, which is about clarifying my part in the whole thing. This week is about clarifying the why of the whole thing. So that's a little cheat. I, I don't want to. We'll get back to the why. Why do we work? Mortgage? To keep up with the Joneses? Does anybody actually live next to a Jones? Anyway, it, but... It, seriously, is it just so we can get a boat? Nothing wrong with a boat. I'd love to have a boat. I don't want to pay for the boat. I'd love to borrow a boat. Let's be honest. I don't want the responsibility of the boat. But is it, is it so that we can, like some, sometimes we work because we like the, if you're in sales, right, you like the thrill of the clothes, like there's something like I you've accomplished something, there's a sense of accomplishment. Or maybe it's like you're ambitious, so it's the path to like the top of whatever organization, company, business, 
genre field that you work in. It's like, I want to be the best at this. I want to have that top position. And so there's this sense of I work so that I can become. Is it just to provide for my family? I need to make sure these people are taken care of. And then what does that mean? Because that's kind of arbitrary. What's taken care of look like? It's different depending on what culture you were born into. And is it I need to leave a legacy, like I want to change my family tree. We had nothing, but now we're going to have, and all the people behind me are going to be blessed because I did this work. By the way, none of these are actually bad reasons for work. They're just, I feel like a little flat. Maybe it's just you value work, like you just woke up and you were in that environment where like valuing hard work was a thing. And so there's just this sense of individual pride that I get from a job well done. Actually, that's very, like, quite honestly, that's true. When I accomplish something, I feel good about myself. Do you? If so many people start the conversation with, well, what do you do? There's this obvious connection that whatever you do in this life, it should matter because otherwise that is not an important question. And in some ways, the value has been shifted because they're saying, what do you do? And they're assuming that who you are, what you're about is whatever your job is. But I've seen people like the lady with passion in their eyes. I'm a nutritionist, and look what I get to do. Conversely, I've seen people, and I work in a cubicle. It doesn't matter. What I do doesn't matter. I just do this thing so I can pay the bills. What I'm really passionate about is, right? Or I work a blah, blah, blah. I travel. Or the guy that says, it would take a conversation for me to explain what I actually do, so let's just say I'm in this field. Yeah. I think they're asking the question, one, so they can relate to you and start up a conversation, try to find some connection point, but I think they're also asking the question because they're, they're kind of, in a sense, asking the question of what's the primary purpose of your life. What's the primary purpose of your life? If you're going to spend more than a third of your time working, it should matter. What if I told you that there is a spiritual foundation underneath the whole thing, like cooked into the fabric of work, that when we get it, when we unlock it, it shapes everything that you do? no matter what you do. I think, for me, that's what it is. And so we need to kind of go back to the beginning, back all the way to the beginning of the Scripture, because in the beginning, right, God began to create. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void. That, that, that term, formless and void, is the Hebrew term, tohu vabohu. It literally means chaos and desolate, 
there was this happening. But God's spirit was hovering over the deep, so somehow it was deep. I don't, I don't know. I can't logistically, I don't think it's trying to get very specific. What I do think is it's trying to elicit this poetic picture of what God is doing. And in the first three days, God separates. So he separates light and darkness. He separates sky and water. He separates the land from the water. And then he fills what gets separated, kind of like everything coming out of a closet so you can label it, organize it, and put it back in to where you can actually find something, which somebody, by the way, feels like that is their purpose in life. I, I welcome you to come to my house because I need that help. So if that's you, just hit me up. But the point being, there's this separation in this filling, and then God fills, right? On day four, He fills what He separated in day one. He fills the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. And then on day five, he fills what he separated day two with all the fish and the birds and the creatures in the sea. And then day six, all the living creatures that move on the land. Now, here's what's crazy. Not only does everything get called good, after every day does it get called good. But there's this unfolding picture of going from chaos to order, and in the midst of that timeline, right, everything was chaos, tova, bohu, void and desolate, right? And then it begins separating, and it begins filling, and it gets orderly. But inside that order, creation itself is endowed with the ability to make more of itself. Starting with day three, when the land gets created, all of the vegetation on the land, right, every seed-bearing plant according to its kind, multiply and be fruitful. That word multiply or to be fruitful is the word dasha. Everybody say dasha. You kind of get to get that, like, excitement about it. But the picture is that it's dynamic. It's not static. It's headed somewhere. And you and I know this to be true in our lives because yesterday is not like today, right? It's an unfolding dynamic thing. In fact, we're, we're dynamically in relationship because if you have a relationship, there's an energy into that relationship. When you feed positive things, good things happen in the relationship. And when you feed negative things, bad things happen. And so the whole idea is that the unfolding picture of creation is it is dynamic. It is headed somewhere. And it's going from chaos to more and more order, from brokenness to more and more peace, from desolation to more and more life, teeming forth. I say all of this to point out something that is painstakingly obvious that we can easily miss. We you and I, humankind, men and women of every shape, race, size, ability, we are invited to participate in shaping the whole direction of creation, according to Scripture, at least. That's the invitation. So let's take a look. This is from Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start with uh, verse 26. It should be on the screen for you, but you can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV version today. 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Uh, that word image is the word salem. It's also translated as shadow, like we're casted as a shadow, a reflection. We're that close. Anyway, side note. In our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and this is a kicker for us. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Dasha, right? Head somewhere. And then there's this subcommand. So that's the command. Produce. Subcommand. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant from the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They are to be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and birds of the sky and creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw what he had made, and it was very good. Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So for today, I want to go back to that verse 28, because there's this subtext to the command Make something, produce, be fruitful, take this thing somewhere. There's the subtext. And in some versions, the word rule is the word reign, R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N, uh, in case you were wondering. And, um, and then subdue. And they're not words that we typically use, especially not in positive lights, definitely not anymore. So for us, maybe if we understand the connotations in the original language, in the original culture, will begin to pick up on something. Um, in Hebrew, the word for rain is the word rada. Yeah, I like that. You made the good at the end, rada. And it means, it means rule or rain, but the connotation is bigger. It's the idea that what you say will come about, that you are opening up the reality and speaking a reality into existence. So um, the ancient rabbis around Jesus' time used words like binding and loosing. So if you ever read the New Testament and they're like, you hear the words binding or loosing, it's picking up on these ideas of rain and subdue, rada and kabash. Everybody say kabash. Kaibosh, everybody, you ever heard that in Yiddish? They say kaibosh, put the kaibosh on that. Put a halt to it, right? Put a stop to it. It's the idea that we're, we're subduing, we're keeping under, we're, pre we're suppressing, but the connotation is bigger. It's to stop, it's to tread downward. In other words, you and I get to open up and push down. We get to, we get to put the parameters around the whole thing. And so if we're going to dasha and produce, we have to understand that humans alone are given this because we have the image of God, the salem of God, poured into our presence that when God breathes life into you, he's saying, you, Gwen, get to help shape reality. 
not just for your life and those around you, but the whole thing. You have a role to play, Judith, in how you interact with people. It changes the whole, in, in other words, humankind, part of the task, the very first command to be the sons and daughters of God, to be God's very good creation, to take our role, we get to say yes and no. We get to say yes to creating reality and no to creating a reality. That power is amazing. And you think about it. You don't actually get to create the life, but you get to say yes and no to what happens with it. You make a kid. You didn't actually make the kid. I mean, you did, but you didn't, right? The life itself is a miracle. And yet you had a yes involved in that or a no involved in that. When you go to your job and you're asked to do something that you're uncomfortable with, you have a yes or a no involved in that. When you think about what you get to do, when you get to do relationship with people, you have a yes or you get to rule or subdue. You get to lada and kabosh. It's like saying yes and no. We are to be fruitful by shaping, deciding, choosing, and working out how the whole thing will go here and now. Powerful, powerful picture. As a side note, our church, we say live the story because we believe that God has a picture in mind for where the whole thing should go. So when we say live the story, we're actually inviting all of us to say yes to the type of life and the type of reality that God pictures one that is more loving, more gracious, more merciful, more immersed, more connected, more hopeful. I think all of us want those kinds of lives and the, that kind of society, and that's actually the picture of what God does throughout the Scriptures, that He's not a God who's far away. He's a God who draws near. He's not a God who doesn't hear the problem, but He not only hears, He doesn't ignore the problem. He wants to provide and shape and bring life into marginalized and broken places. That's the narrative. Where it's all headed is headed to this picture of heaven. Now, in the Jewish context, heaven is not some otherworldly place that we somehow utopianly float away to. It is the place where God is fully reigning and ruling, fully present in our lives. Wherever God's presence is, that's heaven. And so these ancient rabbis, when they were writing this text, they begin to say that we as people, when we chose sin, we reverted back to chaos. Instead of choosing God's presence, instead of choosing heaven, we chose isolation and brokenness. We wielded our power incorrectly, 
and that ruined work because now it's all corrupted. So, before I go any further on that, I, I think it's important that we, we, we just kind of recap. We could go far as to say, as the idea that God invites us to take on a royal task as children by becoming co-creators for this world. Our job then is to continue the trajectory of creation, making more order out of chaos, making more beauty and light right here and right now. When we get that right, when we step into that role where we are choosing to worship and honor God and shape and steward the world around us, we're at peace, aren't we? Because that's where God is reigning and ruling. That's where heaven starts. Now, thankfully, it continues because what we're getting right now is a glimpse of what it means to be fully. Because though I might be experiencing that, what if someone else isn't? The repercussions of brokenness don't just stop with your life. It affects other people. So when sin enters the picture, we break the peace, the order. We choose ourselves over our divine purpose. Instead of being creators, we become takers right? Our role is corrupted. And so, the curse that is given with sin is that the ground we become thorny, right? We know about thorny and brokenness, don't we? Because, and, and I don't really need to spend a lot of time on this, but think about it. In our world and in our lives, brokenness is everywhere. Giant corporations operate for dollars in the bottom line to fill the pockets of few at the expense of many in the environment, right? That happens all the time, including in countries where people have nothing. The poorest of the poor don't even have a say, and they get taken advantage of. There are even less laws for that. Uh, what about this? Maybe this has happened to you. You get passed up for a promotion that you know you're more than qualified for and should get because somebody knew somebody who's Bob's uncle's cousin's brother's baby, and so they got the job, and they're a ninny, right? We've experienced this. Am I allowed to say ninny? Is that too mean? People take advantage of other people through taking advantage of their hours or uh, because they know they're in debt. Uh, you can insert whatever you like here about what is broken about your work. Because if I got you started on what's wrong with where you work, my guess is you could just keep it flowing, right? If I got you started talking about what's wrong with your school where you go to school, what's wrong with the place that you used to work, you have no problem spouting off all of the brokenness. It could go on forever and ever, not to mention the idea of work in general, that it takes time away from our family, and there's no guarantee that our work business or venture that we're starting will actually thrive. Work can expose 
all of our weaknesses in our communication and relationships because it puts stresses on that because we value that 35% of the time that we're pouring into this thing called work. What is it all for? Not to mention work can just stink sometimes, right? See, I think sin and brokenness enter into that because it exposes selfishness and mercilessness. It allows people to see other people as commodities, as means to an end, and we know about that type of brokenness. But here's the beauty for us and the kicker for us. This has been really big picture stuff, so thank you for tracking with me. If the world is this unfolding story that you and I have a role to play in where it's all going, then work is the most exciting thing because it is through work that we get to redeem and restore and heal and care and actually bring about the picture that God has for us. So we get this big picture that the world is broken and disarray, that work gets corrupted. And in the scripture, it's into that scene where Jesus enters the story. And the early church believed that because Jesus enters the story and he conquers and vanquishes sin by dying on the cross and then resurrecting, he, in fact, restores our divine task. The early church believed that the kingdom Jesus was talking about, the kingdom that he was announcing was at hand, was a foundational change to the story. And there had been individuals and people and groups of people that from time to time had saw their work as redeeming and restoring and had taken on their divine role, well, most of the time, people just got corrupted. They stopped doing what was right. They stopped caring. They started caring about themselves. Most of the time, people just kept getting it wrong, missing out on their God-given role, sin abounding. The early church believed that Jesus changed this. I want to read you this quote from a book by a guy named N.T. Wright. He wrote a book called Surprised by Hope, and he says this, the created order which God had begun to redeem in the resurrection of Jesus is a world in which heaven and earth are designed not to be separated, but to come together. In that coming together, the very good that God spoke over creation at the beginning will be enhanced, not abolished. Enhanced, not abolished. See, guys, we are now collaborators, co-creators. We, if we get our divine purpose, are collaborators bringing renewal to our communities and to lives through our work. The early church believed that we, you and I, get to take the whole thing forward. The whole picture of creation is going to be restored and redeemed. All of the brokenness will be overcome through our work as co-creators and collaborators with the kingdom of God. 
one of the disciples that ran with Jesus. He picked up on this. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, in this passage, not only is he saying, hey, you, you once at one time, you, you, you weren't living in mercy, you were living in darkness, but you've received that. That's what God's good gift to us is. That's a beautiful gift. But you are chosen as a holy nation, meaning a set-apart nation for God's work, and you are chosen to be a royal priesthood. That divine task that God gave us at the very beginning is re-decreed on you and me as a community, as a faith community. That's our call, to live out this story. And the beautiful thing is it didn't just start with the church. He's actually quoting what God said to the Israelite people thousands of years before in Exodus when they were leaving slavery and becoming their own people. In Exodus 19, it says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We have this divine task to shape how the world unfolds. So the question is, what type of story are we telling? With your life and what you do, with my life and what I do, what type of story am I telling? Am I bringing God's dreams into reality? Do I take every opportunity to tell the world about how I was in darkness and now I'm in light? I once was merciless, but now I'm full of mercy. Why? Because I am reflecting the image of this God who chooses me, who set me apart to shape this world into what it can be. I get to remove the veil of brokenness because that's not the true reality. The true reality is it was called very good. So my work is to kind of do the spit shine on the silver to wipe back all of the tarnished places into something beautiful. My, my job is to uncloak brokenness and mend it together when things are ripped up. My, my job is to restore lives in our world. We get to care for and shape the whole thing. So what does that mean for us? Because... My response, if I was sitting where you're sitting, my response would be, okay, this is all well and good, and it's nice. You've painted this beautiful picture of how God has chosen humanity to shape the whole world and that we get to tell the world of the good things about God. But I'm just a clerk at the airport. 
What does my job at the airport have to do with that? Do you want me to do some examples here? I'd love to do it. Can I do that? Would, would it be okay if I call on real examples in life? So you're a clerk at the airport. When people are traveling, are they stressed? It's actually the number two stressor. The number one is the dentist. Number two is travel. Number three is public speaking. Gets a bad rap. Number four is the dentist. So we'll go with number two. In traveling, every bit of your relationship is stressed. And if you have a problem, are your defenses not fully up? So you're a clerk at the airport. You get to see people at their absolute worst. What if instead of being frustrated, you get to speak peace into a tumultuous situation? What if with your coworkers, they get beat on day after day after day, but you get to speak life into all these people that are beating on them with their problems? Because if all you ever fielded every day were problem, 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 it would get old really quickly, and it would take a wear on your soul. But if you see your role as to point out the peace and the good and the value, then you get to speak life into somebody's situation that is challenging for them. And what if they see that and that reflects the glory and goodness of God? I'm just a guy who works at a storage facility. Well, when people need storage facilities, they either, A, have too much junk, you can help them with that because they probably need to give some of it away, or they're in transition. And when you're in transition, it is a vulnerable time. Why? You don't know how life is going to go. You were living somewhere, now you're going to live somewhere else. What if it all goes wrong? What if you can speak peace and life and calmness into a situation that is difficult? I'm just a barista. I make coffee. I peddle caffeine. People's drug of choice. It's mine too. Okay? Listen, without my caffeine, I'm not a happy camper. So that alone makes, me, makes your job totally worth it if you are a, a, a barista. But the point being, what if people out of habit come to the same coffee shop every morning? It's a part of their routine. And you have the ability to set their day up. I could go on and on. And I'm talking very small things. But if we see our role as providing healing and care, then the people that we get to interact with, we eventually get to shape how the whole thing unfolds. And sometimes... Right? If you're in the medical profession, it may be life and death. It may be a serious issue. It may be something that, oh, no, the diagnosis came, and what are we going to do? You, that bedside manner, that interaction, that sense of hope, that sense of mercy to that situation, it all matters, whether you're counseling kids or whether you're a stay-at-home parent or whether you are the guy that cleans garbage or houses or you name it, you get to... At that point, why we do what we do is the same. If we've tapped into the divine purpose, then we begin to get to see the why behind it all. Because the why isn't just a paycheck, though it may bless and change your family tree. It isn't just the mortgage or the car payment, though Sometimes the way that we live is necessary to pay for, right? 
If you don't pay your bills, consequences happen. The real why behind it is so that you can, as your act of worship and honor, bring order to chaos, life to brokenness, to take the whole story forward by bringing heaven to earth. The early church says you, 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 you. What we do by bringing glory and honor to God, when we live the story God has for us, it will testify to God's reigning and ruling. It will shape how the whole thing unfolds. It will begin to tell the story of how darkness has been brought to light. It will begin to talk about how unforgiveness and mercilessness has been forgiven. It will begin to say, God chose and chooses you. And the beautiful thing about grace is it doesn't just leave it there. So let's end with this. Paul, when talking about the why behind all of this, says it like this in Colossians chapter 3. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, verse 23, work at it with all your heart. Everybody say this next part with me. As working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. What if the why is to experience heaven here and now? It's all tied with this idea. The band's going to come up. Do we, do we have the last song? Let's cut it. Let's cut it. I want to just make this declaration. We're going to do a song, and, and I'll, I'll let you guys hear it on the radio because it's on the radio. It's called So Will I by Hillsong United. And there's a line in it that starts out, essentially, God formed the galaxies. And if there's 100 billion galaxies crying out, we will worship you, God, then so will I. And so maybe the response this morning isn't something tactile that you have to go do. Maybe it's a decision that you have to live within. That your work matters because you've been given this divine task. And maybe you need to see the whole thing set up. And so when the galaxies are declaring the goodness of God, so will I. So if you could do this for me on the count of three, if that's a declaration you want to make, I'd invite you to just say it out loud with me. On the count of three, if you'll say, so will I. One, two, three. So will I. You, church, my brothers and sisters, have committed to understanding the why behind everything that you do, behind every relationship that you do. It's to bring the presence of God close to bring light into darkness. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I, I don't know that I believe that about God. 
And I can't make that declaration because I don't, I don't know that I even have a relationship with this God that you're describing that chooses to love me where I am, that offers me grace, that brings mercy instead of mercilessness. I'm still working for the man, and all the things I don't like about work are the things I don't like about God because I'm having to prove myself over and over again. And I want you to know that's not the God in Scripture. The God in Scripture says, you. Yeah, you. And you. And you. I choose you to be my kingdom of priests, to be my holy nation set apart so that you can be collaborators, co-creators, conspirators in taking the whole thing forward. Bring light to darkness. So, my brothers and sisters, if you'll receive this benediction, go ahead and stand for me. I'll send you with a blessing. My brothers and sisters, may you come to know the big picture of the unfolding story of Scripture. You are not a passive player. You are given a royal task. And the why behind all that you do, may it bring glory and honor to God because it is bringing light to someone's darkness healing to someone's brokenness, grace to someone's mercilessness, and may you declare with every part of your life, so will I, so will I. Much love, my friends. Have a great week. May the rain pour on you as you leave. And may your soul be filled with this picture of God pouring into you. This is the song. You're welcome to listen to it. Hang out. Pray. You're welcome to go. If you need to go, pick your kids up. But here's the thing. The whole thing, the whole thing gets moved forward because of what you do. So don't, don't miss out and waste your work, but get to the why behind it all. Much love, my friends. Have a great week.